Greetings, everybody. That's right. You are hearing my voice in a new show in the feed. And to all seven people who still listen to this show and still download it or have downloaded it, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's glad to still have you guys around. Or I'm glad, I should say. can tell how out of uh, out of sync I am with my chops with all this. Anyways, a funny thing happens when you decide to take an extended break from podcasting. Your main studio computers decide that they don't want to work anymore. Your web hosting service changes the template, and you have to go back and update it. And it's like, do I really want to keep doing this show? You know, because I'm going to be honest with everybody, my interest in the paranormal has waned a whole lot. Not my interest in strange and unusual and weird topics, just the whole world of paranormal in general really doesn't hold as much interest as it used to anymore. Moving on, um, myself, Stephanie Quick, and AP Strange have a little chat on Facebook. We'll bounce back and forth and send memes and jokes and stuff to each other on occasion. AP's a great guy, very funny, very cool person. Stephanie, we all know my love for Stephanie Quick. She's like an aunt to me. Um, you know, so anyhow, we were, I was like, I kind of want to cover Elvis and I don't want to cover normal Elvis. I want to go out as far as I can into the strange of Elvis and I want to have a good laugh and just have some fun getting back into all this to re-dip my toe back into the water with all this. So we set up a show, computer died. That was months ago. So in that period of time, I've been getting a new computer, getting, getting new, uh, getting new recording programs, learning how to use all the new stuff, having to go back and dig out all of the old show files from the bad hard drive on the old system. It's been a task. It's been a big, um, it's been a big ordeal that in deciding, you know, if I'm not going to cover paranormal as much anymore, what am I going to cover? Well, fortunately, I do still have some pretty unusual and strange topics that I do still want to cover from here and there. But this time, um, I bugged Stephanie and I bugged AP and I said, hey, let's do this Elvis show. Recorded the show, then realized, oh crap, the guys over Conspira Normal more or less just kind of did the, sh- the same show. And I had already was like, well, this wasn't the intention to rip these guys off. Hopefully we didn't. But um, to the guys over at Conspira Normal, sorry, this wasn't intentional to rip off your Elvis show. But do go over and listen to that show because it works with this show very well. Having said all of that, let's just jump into this, and I will see everybody at the other side. Here we go. They did everything Elvis said. He said, Elvis, we got to win this race. We got to win this race. <laughs> Elvis, want some lemonade? Lemonade. That cool, refreshing drink. Let him sing till it was over, too. Elvis was 42 years old. Remember right before he croaked? 
This week, we have AP Strange with us, and we have Stephanie Quick with us. And this is my first show back in quite a while. And we were talking about the whole conversation of Strange Elvis came up. And then we were going to record the show, and the computer died. And now, months later, we are finally sitting down to record the show. And as fate would have it, I was actually at Graceland very briefly about a month ago. Um, long enough for us to run up, look at the sign, get our pictures taken in front of it, and leave. Um, you guys, have, you guys, I'm assuming, have both been to Graceland or API. I'm sure you have. No, actually, I haven't. Oh, uh, okay. I'll have to make a pilgrimage there someday. But uh, actually, I'm more interested in visiting uh, Tupelo, where there's kind of like a shrine to Elvis that's so kind of near his birthplace, I guess. Really? That that might be really cool because um, you have less of the the big crowd, you know, the less less uh, competition getting in there, and it's less touristy, you know. It's just kind of um, off the beaten path. When we pulled up, there really wasn't. When you pull up to Graceland, you it's like pulling into a state park. You've got the little booth that you pull up, you pay your fee, and then you pull up and you go into the place. And then they've got this little, like, turnaround area in the front where I guess, like, Ubers and, you know, caller rides drop people off and stuff. We just kind of pulled up like assholes, parked right in there, and ran up to the sign as quick as we could before somebody comes up and says, you can't park there. So we just, like, run up to the sign, look like assholes, get our picture taken, run back to the car and pull away. And all the people with the Ubers and lifts and stuff are looking at us like, what are you doing? You know, it, it was kind of weird. But we never actually went in. But you did get to see the two jets and stuff from outside and an unrelated, but still funny, weird story. Um, Memphis has some pretty strange people that walk around. And as we pulled out of the Graceland to head back to where, uh, cause I was working down there, I had to do a show. As we pull out, we look over and walking down the right side of the street is a super pimp. And this guy had like these plaid Brown, like dress pants on. He had the super pimp cane with the giant, obviously fake gem on the top of it he didn't quite have an afro but he did have like this this suit coat that it it looked like it looked like it looked like my grandmother's couch for lack of a better term like but it had like the really gaudy like flowers and stuff all over it and shit and if he was wearing platform shoes i wouldn't have all been surprised and this guy was like way out of place in the middle of in this area, it was just like, I'm like, that. that's a super pit. That's Dolomite walking down the road right there. <laughs> and there goes Dolomite. So anyways, welcome back, AP Strange. We're going to talk about Weird Elvis. Now, by Weird Elvis, I'm looking for the creme de la creme of weird, not just the Elvis is alive thing. We've all grown through that. We've all, thank you, Weekly World News, for for making that a thing. Um in in my time of looking into the weird, every once in a while, I will step into the... You, you can't not be into what we do and not step your toe into the whole Elvis thing. And then I think we were talking on Facebook Messenger, and one of you guys brought up Elvis as a UFO cult. And I said, all right, that's this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to start, and this is where we're going to go. But where do you guys want to start with this? What's a good place to start with Strange Elvis? Because there's so much of it out there. It's just a matter of how far into the cesspool you want to swim. Well, I think a good place to start is just kind of Elvis as an archetype of the weird and kind of fringy stuff, you know. Um, his just kind of proximity to it on uh, the cover of Weekly World News or National Enquirer back in the day. Uh, some, some mostly related to Elvis is Alive stuff, but 
they kind of put him in this uh, liminal box in the public consciousness where he's always kind of alongside Sasquatch or UFOs or the Loch Ness Monster. And um, actually, there's memes now where it's like Bigfoot and Elvis like riding the Loch Ness Monster in the water. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it just becomes part of swept up in that whole milieu. And it's kind of interesting uh, him as as just kind of a uh, pop culture archetype being tangential to all of this stuff that we love, you know, almost in a way of making fun of it, though. You've got Elvis the person. You've got Elvis the performer, and now it's transgressed into Elvis the Strange. And yeah. like, there's a new car. I think there's a new cartoon on Netflix. So there was one on Netflix where he's like some secret government agent or something like that. Uh, Bubba Hotep. Um, yeah. You know, you've got it's it's weird that like he's transcended the boundaries of just being Elvis to you know the next evolution of whatever Elvis is. And that's where all this stuff seems, this this malaise and this strangeness all seems to lie. And I wonder if it wasn't the whole, if it hadn't started with the Elvis Never Died thing, if we would still be where we're at right now. Because you don't hear, like, Jim Morrison was a UFO alien cult. You don't hear about Tupac having a church. You don't hear, it's, what about Elvis is what, what, what draws all these people into the, to this, to the strangeness of Elvis. It's just um, a larger than life figure uh, for one thing. And uh, it was, he was kind of the first of, of a kind with that, right? Like if you imagine back in the mid 1950s when he really blew up and, and uh, you, you know, dominated public consciousness that was at a time where that wasn't necessarily a thing. You didn't really have superstars the way that you had, like Elvis prior to that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, and then, you know, he just kind of was, was omnipresent <laughs> beyond that, you know? <laughs> like undeniable in his, in his, uh, in his reach. So. Uh, so AP, but I, I was reading this, um, well, it's a huge, monumental uh, website, because I was reading about the Presbyterians, which is um, a religious, new religious group that is um, devoted to Elvis. And this guy has a list of uh, Elvis as a religious figure or uh, new religious Elvis movement. And I think part of what's going on is that um, a lot of his life story has echoes of uh, like biblical stories, right? I mean, it's like, how did they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, supposedly back in historical times? Well, because he had echoes of um, the story of uh, the Messiah um, that was uh, told in the Old Testament, right? So when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Mm -hmm. This is as it was foretold. So, you know, and Elvis, like this guy said, you know, he was born in humble circumstances and poverty. Um, he was a survivor of a twin birth, right? And so uh, there's a lot of twins, for example, uh, Romulus and Remus. Um, he, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Able, yeah. Exactly, yeah. The, the, the surviving twin. He lived in Memphis, right? So this calls up the whole idea of uh, Egypt and the pharaoh. Um Tupelo is interesting because I was looking that up today. That's where he was actually born. And uh, it is a tree that is, it gives very sweet honey. And, of course, honey is very much associated with, you know, the time in the desert, uh, John and the Baptist. 
uh, eating uh, locusts and honey. Um, so again, there's this, there's these biblical associations. And then um, when he went on to perform, especially when he got in the kind of the, the Vegas style, he really played up like kind of the church and religious associations. Like if you see him, he's like the, the, like those glitzy, almost kind of like jumpsuits, but he wears a lot of white, gold, and silver, like right, like the Pope, right? Right. Even yeah. though he came from Assembly of God, which um, actually one of my uh, dearest, closest friends is Assembly of God, and uh, all that stuff is idolatry. All that Catholic stuff is idolatry. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, but he has like his back, backup singers. I was watching some performances, and they're uh, dressed, and they look like choir robes that you would wear at church, right? Yeah. Um, so he really plays off that religious imagery. Um, as well. So I think that his story um, kind of uh, emerged that way in his life circumstances and things like that. But then he played it up, too. So it, it kind of ends up um, creating this uh, momentum towards people uh, seeing him that way. And, and uh, it ends up being almost like a pop culture avatar of uh, of like a preacher and a uh, <laughs> and like a savior incarnate, you know? Yeah. And the yeah. same way, I mean, to the point where you had like chapels in Las Vegas where you could get married by an Elvis impersonator, you know, or yeah. the very existence of Elvis impersonators, but particularly getting married in the Elvis chapel is. Um, it kind of one of one of those examples where he's he's become like a priestly figure. <laughs> so I got to ask. This brings to mind because I have friends that are Mormon. If you are not actually married in the Mormon temple proper, which I guess costs tons of money, then you are not. And I'm I'm probably going to get shot for, for if I get this wrong. But you're not properly married until you actually get married there. So which until you're leads still me in the temple, yeah. Which leads me to wonder. With the Church of Elvis, if you're not going to Vegas and getting married by an Elvis impersonator, is your marriage actually holy and just in the eyes of Elvis? Hmm. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with Elvis per se. <laughs> you know, well, just- Elvis the person, but Elvis, if God is, if Elvis actually is God and the Messiah, as uh, this one guy has figured out through the well, Elvis is a spiritual code. being. So yes, so then yeah, uh, what was this book I was reading, or not a book? This guy's written three books on the Elvis Code. His name is Matthews. What's the Elvis Code? Hold on. <laughs> <What's> the- <laughs> we're obviously not starting where we're going to start, but if you bring up the Elvis Code, I immediately get like a you know a John Gresham, Dan Brown kind of thing. Like, what oh, is it, what is the Elvis Code? Okay, this guy, Christopher uh, Burns Matthews, and he had spent some time in Israel and was interested in uh, history of the Holy Lands and had written some spy novels. Um, so he was, I guess, around, uh, I don't know, like a 19, the mid-1990s, he was going to write a new novel about some spy thing. And inspired by the Da Vinci Code, he thought it'd be fun to have that kind of a code in the book. So he thought he'd come up with a fake one. But then, and this happens with a lot of people, it was, oh, well, I'm just going to do this fake thing. And they, they start playing around with it. And then it turns like out that they find that there was actually a substance to it. So he's written three books with 1,700 examples of name messaging, as he calls it. And basically what he... 
it's like an English Hebrew code of names, right? So it's basically the secret cipher of the Euthanauts, except for Elvis. Basically, <laughs> like the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> what, you'll do, what you do is you take, like, the name Elvis Presley, right? I love how yeah. fast AP went right to that. <laughs> yep. It's just like, ding. <laughs> It's the, yep. it's the new Aeon Elvis Kabbalah. <laughs> Pretty much. Everybody's so doing take, it. You take Elvis Presley, say, and you write it out phonetically in Hebrew and then uh, the right way, and then you repeat it, but backwards. And then you take that string of Hebrew characters and you start to look at it and see if any words kind of emerge off of it. So then you would put in like the word breaks and then see if you, that you can go anywhere with that. So he has, um, obviously, he's published three books so far about this. He's really into this. He has I would discerned, say after three books, but yeah. Yeah. He has discerned that there is a, a lot of truth and messaging in Elvis's names, but also the names of like his parents, his grandparents, and on back. And all the people in his family. So basically, um, he has figured out that this messaging is so consistent and so precise that it has to have come from God. But here's the thing. Okay, well, uh, one of the main keys is, and again, we get to the whole thing where, it, we're, you know, he's mapping like uh, this, this, the uh, archetype of the Messiah onto Elvis. And says, yes, it turns out that, yes, Elvis is the actual Messiah and Savior. And Jesus was not, according to this code. Oh, boy. Um, he has descend, uh, is, uh, descended from the house of David, right? So, again, this is just like you know, fulfilling these things of the Messiah. But the kicker is, as if this was not weird enough, apparently... Um, he figures that this code is so precise, it only could have been put into uh, these names by God. But if you follow the messaging, uh, the code tells you, and it's God speaking through this code, that Yahweh is not the real God. The real God of all gods is um, the bull God of the ancient like Mesopotamians um, and uh, so on. So, uh, as he says, the ancient bull god El, who was worshipped under various names from Memphis in, from Memphis in Egypt to ba Babel in Mesopotamia and beyond. So here again, you see the, the importance of uh, Memphis. Um, yeah, so it turns out that uh, actually Christianity is just a sham. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to tell you what's going through my head right now. These are the things that I want to do. Number one, I kind of want to join the church because, hey, you know, I, I'm already part of the, I'm already a member of the subgenius. Um, I think I'm in mm -hmm. Dudaism. You can never have too many saviors, and who wouldn't want Elvis as a savior? Am I right? Um, True. So, B, I want to I want to join this church. I want to find out if they have a Facebook group, and then I want to go in there and start a sub Elvis religion that believes, you know, how and how you've got like I don't know. I, I think there's like two hundred thousand different sects of Christianity at this point, or something like that. So mm -hmm. if we could start some strife in the Elvis Church of Elvis and break off and form another church that's separate from the Church of Elvis, like because you, you've done that, you've you've already seen this happen with the Church of Satan and so forth. 
to where we yeah. could break off and start yeah. another sub church of Elvis. That's um, a really long game to run, though. I it mean, it's a long game, but the best the best religious ones are long games. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, wouldn't it be quicker to start a church, Buddy Holly, or like Gene Dixon? Or <laughs> it would be quicker to start a chain, a church of Buddy Holly, but that could be the whole kicker of the whole thing. It's not actually a sub church of Elvis. It's actually a church of Buddy Holly that was started yeah. to pull religious worshippers away from the church of Elvis and into the church of Buddy Holly for the big bopper. I, I'm just I'm just going off here. You guys can cut me off at yeah, any time. Big bopper died for your sins, man. Big bopper died for your sins. <laughs> Elvis died for my sins too, but he did not die in the same manner that the big bopper died. So well Elvis died and then rose again is the difference. So you know Yes. Three days later. So Oh gosh, speaking of how uh, Elvis died, I just have to say that, uh, of course, I've been doing research on this, and uh, Anthony had let me know a couple nights ago that he knows the real reason that Elvis died on the toilet is because he was probed by aliens the night before. And crickets. All right, so where 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 would uh, AP? We've been talking our talking our ears off. Let's where where do you want to start with this whole thing? Because I guess you're kind of the ringleader of all this. You have more strange Elvis knowledge here than any of us for the most part. Definitely more than me. So well, like ninety percent of the world, I would say. Yes, I, at least. <laughs> uh, well, I thought it was interesting that you brought up that uh, the Elvis Code was inspired by the uh, uh, he was he was hoping to write a fictional book and then kind of stumbled on what he assumes is a real code that's there that was put by God, um, and and the, because it mirrors part of uh, uh, Gail Brewer Giorgio was the one that wrote the original Is Elvis Alive book and kind of kicked off the whole um, you know, did, did Elvis fake his death kind of conversation. Uh, the interesting thing about that that gets slept on a lot is that she had originally written a book called Orion and she was writing a, a fictional story that was kind of based on Elvis uh, because she was moved by how upset people were when Elvis died. Um, she didn't necessarily know much about him, but she kind of framed this fictional character around him and then came to find out that like all these things that she was writing about him in the book were um, things that actually happened to Elvis in real life. So there was kind of, there's like this psychic element to is Elvis alive that she barely even acknowledges <laughs> mm -hmm. and it seems like nobody ever did, but it's kind of actually like a really good, um, documented psi event, if nothing else, because it seems like she was able to tap into details about Elvis's life that she couldn't possibly have known. Not only was she not like necessarily a big fan, but she seemed to know things that only like people in the Memphis mafia knew or like, uh, people that worked with them personally knew. Um, and they, the publishers ended up taking the book and, uh, buying the rights to it and then not publishing it. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So it turns into this <laughs> conspiracy type of thing, right? It's knowledge but, they don't want you to know. <laughs> but shortly thereafter, there was a musician called Orion, um, that wore a mask and sounded exactly like Elvis. So Sun Sun Records was kind of playing with that. Um, 
there's a there's a documentary about this guy. Uh, um, I think it's called The Man Who Would Be King. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd have to look it up, but um, but uh, but at any rate, it's it, this is just kind of like the beginning of Is Elvis Alive? This is the stuff she's talking about that set her on the path to looking into it. Um, and she well, seems she to, had been all of America or something like that. Did she do an interview on there? I think, or am I thinking of somebody else? It was a while ago, though. Yeah, um, Benal did a. Um, did an Elvis show, but it was with a different guy. Uh, I don't think he ever had Gelb or Giorgio on. Okay. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that she like does appearances anymore. I know she's still alive. Like she's around. Um, Mm -hmm. she might've been on coast to coast at some point. Yeah, okay, the documentary is called Orion, the Man That Would Be King, and it's super, really super interesting. Um, but, but yeah, no, it, it, this is just kind of one of those things that when you're reading the book, you're like, well, that's a story in and of itself. Like, damn, like, <laughs> you seem to psychically know all this stuff, and you have proof because she submits all these affidavits and contracts and all this other stuff around it just to prove that she came up with this story and um, yeah. have like a paper trail for like a legal case for them kind of hiding the novel that they bought the rights to. Um, but I, I mean, like that also kind of proves a side event if you wanted to go that way with it, but I guess you don't. So <laughs> uh, I just find that interesting. It's kind of like the fictional, the fictional angle becoming some, something real, you know? Well, it's like, yeah, the whole idea of uh, creativity really just like how do things become real or, or, you know, it's like it starts as a thought or an impulse and you follow it and then and then uh, it can become um, more manifest, more physical. Yeah. That's very weird. I there is an instance. Are you suggesting that Elvis is a tulpa? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> well, Elvis was self-invented in a lot of ways. I mean, you talk about fiction. It's uh, he based a lot of his look and persona on um, Captain Marvel Junior, the character from comic books. You know. Yeah. Uh, so that's like the lightning bolt. Partly comes from that that he used as a symbol throughout his life. Um, dyeing his hair black because uh, I actually found a picture of Elvis before he dyed his hair and I'm like damn he's got the same hair color I do (laughs) 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 he was actually a dirty blonde how about that there Um, you go but uh, yeah I mean and and like the jumpsuit and the scarves and all that stuff and the interest in like karate he was a big karate guy Um, it, it was kind of rolling into rolling Captain Marvel Jr. into his own um, persona and, like, personifying a larger-than-life entity, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You gotta wonder if Elvis is in the afterlife and then all of a sudden, all of this, like I said, you have Elvis the person, the performer, and then you have Elvis beyond. You know, so, and all of a sudden, it's like you've got worshippers and all of this stuff and, and, and People, because that's the like the like the show American Gods, the whole thing on there yeah, that's is exactly what I thought of when you said that. Yeah, yeah. it's it's it reminds me of American Gods, where the belief in something is what gives it its power. But you also had in like the television version of it, there were I think it was in the book too. There was all these different versions of Jesus, 
Yeah, he, it was like 25 Jesuses. Yeah, and they had the, like the Jesus sitting in the pool, like, and he, he drops his drink into the water and he can't go in it because he's sitting in the, on the pool. So you got to imagine, like, you know, you've got the young Elvis, you've got the velvet Elvis paintings, um, which you can find all over Vegas on the strip if you're at the very beginning of the strip down by the airport. Um, my living room. You have a velvet Elvis painting, <laughs> which is it? Is it the young Elvis or is it the old Elvis? Uh, it's Vegas Elvis. Vegas, it's yeah. Kind of chubby, crying Vegas Elvis. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this goes back to my point with American gods that. Like with all these different people believing in Jesus and all these different forms. So you've got to wonder if there's all these incarnations of Elvis in the afterlife. You've got the young Elvis, the old bloated fat Elvis. You know, you've got the Elvis that was in the movies, like the young military Elvis. You know, like if you're going to worship Elvis, what do you put on the wall as the picture of Jesus? Like you well, have here is, here, well, here's the thing that I, that I started thinking about when we brought this up, which is that... Um, there are a lot of process. Now, this is because, and I listened to my the show again uh, about a year ago. I did a show on the farm uh, with Steve Snyder about human sacrifice. <laughs> Why am I bringing this up at this point? Well, because yeah, you love well, Elvis topics. and human sacrifice go great together. But go ahead. <laughs> because you have uh, a lot of these traditions um, all over the world for taking a individual human person and uh you know through ritual uh prayer devotion sometimes human sacrifice you uh put them in the position where they could be an intercessor um or intermediary intermediary be- intermediary between human beings and the gods so you know the catholic saints right um the orishas and the loa uh also are these type of entities that, that have become, uh, you know, divine uh, essence, but the, they partake of um, the souls and qualities and uh, life experience of human beings, right? That's why saints are a lot more, um, or Arishas or Loa, a lot more sympathetic to humans and their problems because they have they partake of that life experience. Um, in uh, South America, uh, you have instances, uh, for example, in the, the Incan civilization, and you have those um, the sacrifices of children uh, to the gods, and that was specifically uh, done, and those children were uh, treated very well their entire lives so that they would speak well to the gods and be able to plead case of the people who were still living. Um, so to me, you know, it's like, of course, there's all these um, aspects of Elvis because he's, you know, through uh, uh, the whole process of his fame and then uh, through his death, um, he has become something bigger. I was thinking of um, and this is a funny angle. I don't know. It's kind of a stupid angle, maybe. But I was thinking of um, Psyche, the Greek goddess. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of her in distinction to um, Persephone, uh, because they both get kidnapped by gods and are kind of kept incommunicado for a long while. And I was thinking, and a lot of people, and I think there's like a revision, which I think is is exciting uh, about Persephone to say, well, actually, she was really into Hades, and that's why they staged this kidnapping and stuff. But I thought, you know, she went on hunger strike when she was down there, like she ate couple of pomegranate seeds unfortunately for her but she didn't you know but psyche 
uh, was like into it. And, you know, she was just like chowing down all the time. You know, it's like the finest, you know, like beautiful gardens and uh, place and servants and they're feeding her all this great food all the time. She's like, oh, this is delicious. Thank you. But it kind of um, reminded me. And, and she's in that in-between process of not really of being kind of sequestered and set apart from other humans. She's not actually a goddess yet. But she has um, this incredibly uh, sumptuous uh, carnal existence. And I was thinking that's, you know, it's very much like a rock star, especially someone like Elvis, who just loved to just like eat. <laughs> I was going to say, are you suggesting that I should sacrifice my children to Elvis? I mean, I'm halfway there. So they could plead your case for you. But I think it's kind of interesting that he is kind of going through a different type of thing where he just has like the close circle. Like all these people that are adoring you, but that it's like a lot of it, adoration that it, it, how how practical is it like on a human level? I mean, it, it's nice. I think that some people like uh, like I would say Bill Clinton is able to to feed off. You know, you could just tell that he just gets a real big charge, a lot of energy and, and it, uh, focus and excitement from uh, being in front of a crowd. But I don't know that everyone can do that. And uh, you have to kind of turn it, you know, it's not like your next door neighbor friend who's going to be able to help you if you break your car breaks down or something, right? Mm-hmm. Am I making any kind of sense? But I thought it was interesting. Sure, it's Elvis. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> the Elvis has kind of gone through, instead of saying, well, like, the Elvis personally. I'm just saying that Elvis as a human being, no, it's probably not practical. But Elvis as a spiritual being, sure, he can harvest all that energy. Yeah, I go back to the American so Gods like, thing. These two things. And it's funny, I was listening to uh, Shannon Taggart, who was talking on this um, podcast called The Side Woo, and they were talking about uh, celebrity encounters that people have with celebrities after they're dead. And it was funny because she was said she had been uh, speaking to one professional medium, and um, the, the sitter came in and sat down in the, this meeting. I think, I, can't, I think it was Freddie Mercury. And so she's sitting there, and she's she gets the idea of Freddie Mercury. She's like, no, that's – so then it keeps coming through, like, the third or fourth time. She's like, okay, I'm getting – Freddie Mercury wants to talk to you. She's like, oh, my mom worked as, like, his housekeeper, <laughs> So, <laughs> which is a great hit. But then also it shows that, like you're saying, there's, like, this kind of, like, transcendent archetypal, as you're saying, aspect to these people. But then there's also the the practical level too, and I how much of the practical is left, you know, after you go through this kind of transformation, like for example, Elvis has gone through in the in the decades since he has died. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, even during his life, if you think about how famous he got and how quickly when he was very young, yeah, I mean, yeah, like yeah, imagine being like, I actually, don't know how old he was when he got his first record out but like let's say 20 if you're 20 years old then you become like it become huge you become a household name everywhere mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're a superstar you you've forfeited any kind of normal life that you would have had you know yeah. um and i mean the, the beatles were kind of the same way and anybody that became a star as a child that's you're living an existence that's unlike anybody else's right so <laughs> The only other people you can get along with and who will understand where you're coming from are other celebrities, right? So, yeah, you have the person. You have Elvis as a human being, which is very different from um, 
everything else that comprises Elvis in our in our popular consciousness. Yeah. And that that becomes a distinct entity in and of itself. And in that way, Jesus, like um, I just said, Jesus when I meant to say Elvis. In that way, Elvis is alive, and Elvis does live, you know, because, <laughs> yeah. because that that cultural Elvis never went away. You know, that the cultural Elvis never left the building. No, and it's yeah. still evolving because, like, like I said, you had Jesus. Not now, you've got me doing it. You have Elvis. <laughs> Again, as a person, you have Elvis as a performer, but now Elvis is no longer with us. Even if he did live and if he did fake his death, I'm pretty sure he'd be dead by now anyways. So henceforth, I will continue to talk about Elvis in the past tense. Um, but then you have Elvis as what he became after he died, which is, you know, the, the whole well, he faked his death and he moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. That was the big one. Uh, I think that was the main one that got it all started. What was that? He was working at a Burger King in yeah. Kalamazoo. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so then you go from there, and then it, you, you evolve. You would mention something on um, on Conspiranormal about Elvis possibly having D, uh, alien DNA spliced into him, which did that turn into some kind of a UFO alien worshiping uh, Elvis cult or no? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's necessarily a cult, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was. Uh, <laughs> I can picture one that just meets regularly at the back of a gas station somewhere down south and, uh, you know, wears tinfoil hats and burns things in a trash can. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, uh, like, yeah, the, that book, The Elvis UFO Connection by Richard Daniel is a, a, a wild collection of, of – um, of ideas where they're really, really reaching for anything that might possibly be alien oriented around Elvis. But one of these ideas that they had was, um, that, uh, th that Elvis was an alien human hybrid. And part of that entailed him being able to reach humanity on, um, on behalf of the alien race through music. So in this, they kind of quote, uh, they quote a book called um, Elvis and Gladys, written by George du Maurier. Um, and they're saying that he had like a unique larynx and vocal cords. So uh, the, the, <laughs> the alien human hybrids are responsible for Elvis's voice here, uh, mm -hmm. is the idea. And the, the way he can sing is... Uh, special to these aliens and, and their messages being conveyed more through the tone of his voice than the words. So there's hidden messages in Elvis's voice. So when you listen to when you're listening to Elvis, you are actually getting downloaded alien instructions. Well, yeah, it's the. It's I mean, the if we're reaching here, I'm going to reach all the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's essentially what they're saying. Cause oh my it, God. <laughs> it's encoded in the vibrations of, of his vibrato when he's singing. You know, um, it says these cerebrations are caused by the organized vibrations of a certain larynx's invisible, impalpable, incomprehensible little airwaves in mathematical combinations. And, what? <laughs> and the laws that govern them have existed forever before Moses, before Pan, long before a larynx had been evolved. So they're suggesting that it may be that the entirety 
The entire being of Elvis Presley, especially his voice, was the end product of a very definite design initiated by the same force that has come to us from the heavens and has been with us for every phase of our evolution. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what they're suggesting in this book. And I say they because it wasn't actually one author that wrote the Elvis UFO connection. It was two, and they mashed their names together. Um, I can't imagine why neither one of them wanted to take credit for the book. But <laughs> no, no. But so, uh, for that whole idea, I mm-hmm. would refer to the immortal words of um, Mojo Nixon, who <laughs> who said, yeah, man, you know, people from outer space, people from outer space, they come up to me. They don't look like Dr. Spock. They don't look like Klingons, all that Star Trek drive. They look like Elvis. Everybody <laughs> in outer space looks like Elvis because Elvis is a perfect being. We're all moving in perfect peace and harmony towards Elvisness. Soon all will become Elvis. Everything everywhere will be Elvis. Why do you think they call it evolution anyway? It's Elvis Lucian. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the thing, because AP, you and I were talking, or I, I was talking at you, it was probably a little more <laughs> accurate, today about Gurdjieff, right? The mm-hmm. esoteric teacher at the beginning of the 20th century. And he he did really freaky, weird stuff with sound and music. He had the one uh, student, uh, Salzman, who was a composer, would work with him to get some of his uh, music ideas down. But he was definitely into uh, music and sound um, as a way to communicate uh, directly with the uh, more subconscious and uh, visceral aspects of uh, a human's uh, being. He would... Do weird stuff. There was one instance where he and he uh, uh, was with some students. I think I think this was at the school that he had built in the south of France. Don't quote me on that. And a woman and her daughter came over to visit him, and he sent something in the daughter, and he said, "Oh, I'll demonstrate something for you." So he had the daughter sit there, and he just started playing certain tones on the piano in such a way that he was kind of like almost able to, to hone in on it. And when he reached a certain point that she went into trance and then I believe she was able to, like, I don't know, like a, a communicate telepathically or something while she was in this trance state. But he entranced her through like certain musical tones. So was he playing Elvis to try to, to entrance her or? And no, this is pre Elvis, but, um, but I think it sh- I would not be surprised I think that a lot of these ideas about um, sound and the intrinsic esoteric uh, or uh, kind of uh, subtle structural properties of sound uh, go back quite, I mean, even to the beginning of that, right? In the beginning was the word. But uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Gurdjieff was pretty popular in a lot of um, artistic and uh, kind of weird music circles. Um, yeah. You know, people interested in the esoteric and stuff. And so his ideas had a fair amount of popularity. And, uh, well, like uh, Robert Fripp of King Crimson, right? He's a big Gurdjieffan and is big on his ideas about uh, music and stuff. So I think I wouldn't be surprised but, if some of that kind of seeps into people that are writing like those guys did about Elvis and the alien DNA. 
Yeah, I mean, that is kind of like an idea that exists out there, too, about ancient peoples and how they were able to build structures where there was kind yes. of zero-point energy sort of thing that was based on sound and sonic combinations and things like that, which I think is a really cool idea, and I, mm -hmm. I believe it's true. Um, I mean, I would also add to that that the same year Elvis passed away, you had the movie uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there you go. And, you know, I have a National Geographic, uh, uh, National Enquirer from the time that has, you know, a big picture of Elvis and it says classic close encounters of the third kind above it. They're not exactly they're not supposed to be related. They're two different stories. But um, it, it's kind of funny to see them in such close proximity. But I mean, what happens at the end of that movie is that they're communicating with the mothership of the alien race, but through tones of frequency. They're doing the ba 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 ba, you know. Yeah, with that terrible flabby tuba. Ugh. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I like that. Movie. That's Stephanie's problem with the whole movie. Every time I see that movie now, I'm gonna be like, Stephanie hates that tuba. That stupid tuba. I'm sure if it was an Elvis chant, it would probably be different. I think, but I think Hank liked it, but uh, he was in there. But um, he wasn't. He wasn't a classically trained tubist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but uh, <laughs> it strikes me as more of a flautist. I don't know why. Uh, Joshua Cutchin, you are being paged. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, and then also during the 70s when Elvis was performing in Vegas, like a part of his show was having the theme from 2001 as like his opening intro thing, like mm -hmm. his entrance music, you know, Um which this that song is is also is actually titled uh, "Thus Spake There Zarathustra." Yeah, Strauss, uh, right? Yeah, it's Strauss, and uh, and it's referred to as a tone poem, is the the kind of composition. I don't know, you know. Speaking of Kutchin, he might understand what a tone poem actually means, but that's. <laughs> But but I mean, we should you, call him right now and be like, "Kutch, we need your. We're, we're doing a show on Alien Elvis, and we need some advice from you or whatever." He'd probably that do means, it. That means it doesn't have a melodic structure in the classical sense. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's the uh, you know the long drawn out, drawn out notes at the beginning of it. The bum, yeah, bum, 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 that kind of thing. You know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean. I don't know. You're talking about music and frequency and sound and all of these things. And, uh, I, I think that there may be some mystical quality to that. Um, and, and it's a lot of, a lot of interesting food for thought. I think that the, the, the stuff that I alluded to earlier is, is more on the batshit end of it, but, um, uh, it's still fun, you know, absolutely fun to think about. So was Elvis's mother abducted? to to implant her with alien DNA so that Elvis would you know be be the hybrid of choice here or what what's what's the backstory to how Elvis well, was engineered alien theorists say yes <laughs> okay so how did how did they come to the conclusion that Elvis's mother was abducted and that he was um I guess hybridized would be the term. I'm sure if Jeremy Vaney were to hear this right now, he would be rolling, rolling, rolling around in, in anger and disgust, or laughing, or both. <laughs> Speaking of aneurysms, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, they build pretty thin cases for things, but they're talking about the as, work as of, most of the UFO, ufology field does. But 
Right. And I mean, a, a good deal of the book is like UFO cases 101. They just kind of cover a bunch of stuff to get you up to speed if you're not actually a big UFO person. And I think that was kind of like to meet people that are just Elvis fans halfway or something like that. But um, uh, yeah, they're basing a lot of their criteria about what makes an abduction or what makes a uh, um, alien encounter off of the work of people like Bud Hopkins or David Jacobs. And so these are ufologists in the 80s that relied heavily on hypnotic regression, and they were very vested in the ideas of um, alien humidity hybridization programs and things like that. Um, So I think they were kind of treating that uh, source material as the basis for, uh, uh, for, for the narrative that they were trying to spin. And I don't know how intentionally <laughs> they were doing this, but, but it's kind of obvious that they didn't consider all of the possibilities. They weren't talking about like contactees. They weren't talking about, um, they weren't talking about, uh, UFOs in the sense of anything other than, this very uh, niche framework of of abductees that had their stories told through hypnotic regression uh, by Bud Hopkins, pretty much. <laughs> so, well, it's so almost that, it's almost that, as if they found two very popular uh, things that were happening and just decided to kind of combine them in kind of a chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you got UFOs in my Elvis. Yeah, um, mm. but um, the yeah, I mean, they they said they were uh, inspired to write the book because of a documentary they were watching where Elvis is wearing a belt buckle that is basically the infinity uh, symbol, mm-hmm. and um, they said they it occurred to them that it looked like a pair of gray alien eyes. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how they interpreted. Mm-hmm. Infinity belt buckle, therefore aliens. I can clearly make a connection here. I I can totally see where this is going. Right? You too can write a book that will uh, sell tens of copies. (laughs) (laughs) Print after one printing and become very difficult to find decades later. No, 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 no. You just go. You go straight to e-publish at that point. You don't. You don't even bother putting it out in physical form. Right. Well, yeah. This was the '80s, though, when the book came out. So yeah, Uh, you kind of had to. But yeah, I mean, I think they were they were very much um, in in that milieu of of like Bud Hopkins Intruders book and and stuff like that, and they they kind of based it all on that. So one of the ideas in that kind of stream of thought is that abductees are generational abductees, and that follows one generation to the next. So they kind of pick and choose. They cherry pick a bit of like Gladys's. life uh, prior to Elvis's birth and after uh, they allude to her having this suspicion that there were men in the bushes outside, like trying to peek in the windows and things like that as a, uh, uh, as a way of suggesting that perhaps aliens were landing and, you know, lurking about outside and waiting to do things. Um, There's a pretty fun story about how Elvis was conceived during which I guess uh, fun in quotes, <laughs> fun in quote, I can only imagine how much fun it was for Elvis to hear about his own conception. Because <laughs> oh that's something I've never had the pleasure of hearing. I, I unfortunately, um, I, I know exactly where I was conceived because my mom Same made it a point that every time we would drive by there, my mom would go, yeah, that's where you were conceived. 
And to this day, I still frequently drive by that area. And I remember telling my kids that's where I was conceived. And they were like, Dad, you really don't need to tell us that. I'm like, yeah, neither did your grandmother. I mean, it doesn't bother me that much, but it's still one of those weird things. It's just like, you know. Yeah, I, why would you feel the need to tell me that? Yeah, exactly. Like, I've, I've never told my kids, you know, the, the fashion and manner or where they were conceived at, to be honest with you. But. Yeah, my mom just made it a point that every time we went by this particular location, she'd be like, so, you know, I'm like, yes, mom, I know. I know. I wonder if this was like normalized, though, because you're talking about like a period of time where, I mean, sex was probably not talked about nearly as much. And uh, Elvis, Elvis and his family were fairly religious. It just seems like a weird thing for Vernon Presley to just come up with one day. <laughs> but um but apparently he lost con- consciousness and was being operated like a marionette during the process of uh, um, Elvis's being conceived. So, <laughs> um, just okay. kind of being up and down, you know. Uh, this is a visual. <laughs> Everybody listening right now is imagining Elvis being conceived by aliens. Yeah, go look it up a picture of Vernon Presley, and then you can you can. Imagine it even better. But yeah, and then beyond that, the the, the night Elvis was born, um, uh, he he of course had a twin brother that was a stillbirth, and um, there can be only one. Right, there can only <laughs> there's only there's only one king. The only true uh, way to kill Elvis is to remove his head. Right. <laughs> And then you but, have the uh, Elvising, which is like the quickening where sparks fly all over and you instantly gain all knowledge of Elvis. Yeah. Wow, that's Vernon Presley. I've never seen Elvis's dad, so I'm, I'm inclined <laughs> to look up Elvis's father based on the fact that he was animated by aliens during sexual intercourse. Yeah. Yeah, I this hope- is why people come and will listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> yep, come for the aliens, stay for the naked Vernon Presley. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Uh, when you know, obviously this is this is a big mixed emotion. Oh moment. My God, I'm sorry, I just looked up. What's that? I just looked up a picture of Presley. You know, Steph, I was talking to the listeners. <laughs> you don't do it during the show. Have you never podcasted with Stephanie before? Stephanie has this amazing ability. You could be talking about shoe leather, and she will somehow take it into this vastly spiritual realm. I've done many a show with Stephanie, and it's either it's going to go one of two ways. It's going to be something very embarrassing and involving underwear somehow, or it's going to be spiritual, or it's going to be both. Ah, you have done shows with Stephanie before. So, okay. Yes. Anyway, I'm sorry. But, um... Yeah, so, all right, <laughs> setting the scene once again. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Elvis has just been born. His twin brother wasn't so lucky, and this is a mixed bag of emotion for Jesse, who also doesn't know how he's going to, like, afford his house and how to pay the doctor and all this other stuff. He goes outside, and there's a mysterious blue light above the house in Tupelo where where, where he was born. So this blue light is something that plays into... Um, it plays into these ideas that, you know, maybe maybe there was a flying saucer there at the moment Elvis was born. Star you know? Bethlehem. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't 
I'm, I, it's hard to find like a good description of what they mean by blue light. Like, was it a blue point in the sky? I, I think of it as like a blue glow around mm-hmm. us. So I actually, because this is, this is how nutty I am when I'm looking into these things. I actually tried to look up whether there were any weird anomalous weather events recorded in Tennessee at that time. <laughs> and I couldn't yeah. really find anything. And I also tried to look up any anomalous weather phenomena that would create a blue light in the sky. And, and um, I, did, I didn't find anything, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, that it, there isn't something that matches that description. See, again, this is what we need to start our Church of Elvis. Right here we have the backstory of Jesus's birth. I'm not Jesus, Elvis's birth. Now you've got me doing it, of Elvis's birth. <laughs> Where, yeah, we're all slowly being converted in the course of this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're building the religion as it happens. Because I'm also part of another religion that has to do with um, taking a lobster and helping the lobster molt to make a giant lobster god. Um, yeah. That's that's a, something entirely different. But I've noticed that whenever somebody tries to create a religion, it always falls back on Judeo-Christian principles, unless you're talking about Scientology. Um which with Elvis, it sounds like we have the ability to take to borrow from both religions to make a new religion. We can borrow some from Scientology and we can borrow some from Christianity here. But we we now have it's it now we now have documentation that when Jesus was born, there was a heavenly blue light outside to help advise them. And we know that that Elvis has then been touched by the sacred gene splicing technology of the gray aliens, our space brothers, and he's been put on the earth to. Um, lead mankind out of this state of darkness, and we're just waiting for Elvis's return at this point. Stop in at any time and, and add to this at any time if anybody wants to, to help build this this religion as we go. So, um, I'm, I'm here, I'm invested, now you're talking about a blue light that was outside of his house just after Jesus was born. We lost him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. Oh, no, that's fine. My jerk neighbor was revving his motorcycle, and I had to to mute it. (laughs) Don't worry. I'll fix all of this in post-production. So anyways, um, continue with the story of the blue light of heavenly light that that was encapsulating our Lord and Savior, Elvis Christ. Well, see, that's the thing is that that's all the info there actually is right there. (laughs) There was there was a blue light. That's it. The aliens didn't come and tell him we're going to take care of you or your child is special or or nothing like that. Yeah. I mean, when I when I alluded to them having a very thin pretext for all of this stuff, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about where (laughs) you're like, I'm about to get into the meat of it. And they're like, and there was a blue light over the house. And you're like, and then, and then they just move on to something else. (laughs) And there was no meat. (laughs) And there was no meat. And there was no meat. And so it it has been written. And so it has been said. And so instead there was peanut butter and bananas. (laughs) There's our communion right there. You just found it. That that shall be our peanut butter banana sandwich. Yeah, Yeah. that'll be our that'll be our sacred communion right there. Um, The church hymnals will be obviously Elvis songs uh, for the most part. We have yeah. plenty to choose from. This this is going to work just fine. I'm telling you, we, we need to get behind this and we need to do this. We need to start a GoFundMe. So, Rogan, yes. There, can I just bring up uh, briefly? I don't know how much time we have, but oh, we got enough time. Act- Go ahead. There actually was in Portland uh, from like the mid '80s until of about the mid uh, 2000s. Yes, of course, it's Portland. There was a 24-hour Church of Elvis 
and it was an actual real life place. This lady, uh, Stephanie Pierce, had a law degree and um, she practiced uh, law, I think, for a few years. And then she decided that she wanted she was really interested in art. Um, and so in 1985, she uh, leased this 10,000 square foot um, space in Portland. And I believe that um, it I don't know. She had to move around a number of different times because, you know, rents kept going up and the, the 24-hour Church of Elvis was not a huge moneymaker, as you might expect. Well, you um, have to be called for it. You, you, you know, it's... Yes, yes. Um, so she made this play, place called Where's the Art? With two exclamation points at the end. And she hosted, like, literally thousands of artists came through and uh, and showed their art in this space over the years. Um, and through time, but she ended up, I think she moved to another place where they had like a storefront window, you know, the, the glass and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she ended up, uh, she had an idea from a couple of high school kids of a, uh, coin operated 24 hour church of Elvis. And so she used, um, like, uh, these Commodore 64 state of the art computers back then. And she just made these uh, little things where you could put a coin in, and uh, basically you could, um, I should send you the uh, picture of them, it's pretty cool. Uh, you could uh, hear a sermon by Elvis, you could confess your sins, uh, you could receive the Elvis Presley Catechism, or you could get a picture of yourself with Elvis for a quarter. And so this was just this thing that was coin operated and out there uh, 24 hours a day. And um, is this like yeah. one of those fortune teller things where you put the coin in and it, like it animates and it prints out your fortune or whatever? Or it's very it's very similar to that. She had kind of uh, kind of uh, jerry rigged these things up herself. I'm sending a, a picture to the Facebook chat so you guys can see this guy is uh, there. This. Um, in front of there and uh, choosing what he wants of the uh, 24-hour Church of Elvis. Um, but then she ended up uh, this – Yep. What the <laughs> hell? What? It looks like Freddie Mercury. It doesn't even look like Elvis. Is, <laughs> what it is this? Like, it is this real kind of like uh, folk art. Uh, it ended up becoming more performance art. Um Kind of, uh, what was I, I was listening to this uh, show with Jeff Hole on the farm, and he was talking about uh, immersive art experiences, right? So things like an alternate reality game or Burning Man, right? Um, where you have this kind of section of reality where the rules are changed for whatever uh, time or whoever's there. And um, it's about the logic of art and interacting on these uh, new ways instead of just being this kind of corporatized, uh, commercialized spaces where everything's about making money, right? This so is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. It reminds me kind of of one of those Japanese panty vending machines or whatever they have kind of yeah yeah except for it's just this this kind of elvis thing and it's it's a weird thing because um like we're talking about okay like the personal elvis versus elvis the archetype or the egregore or the saint elvis folk saint elvis um because she had this idea for a art space that could feature uh different artists and stuff um but by 
by developing the church Elvis, she got a lot more publicity and was able to do a lot more and have a lot more life to it um, and a lot more creativity, I think, uh, by kind of leveraging the, the charisma and the draw of Elvis. Um, so she ended up uh, in like the around the late 80s, early 90s. She had some good publicity. Um, she got like in the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times. Jay Leno came over there <laughs> to tour the uh, Church of Elvis, and uh, I guess a radio station in Chicago flew out a couple that won a contest, and um, they got married in the Church of Elvis. She would have, um, she was a minister, as well as like a spokesmodel, um, and so she would marry people legally for $25. You could have like a novelty wedding for $5, or you could have a coin-operated wedding for $1 <laughs> at the Church of I mean, <laughs> wow! It beat that price. You know, you know what I was really hopeful to find at one point was an Elvis Exorcist. What? Like, Wait, you found an Elvis Exorcist? I found brief reference to exorcism being a thing that some Elvises could do, but uh, <laughs> um, I was really hoping to find find somebody that that specialized in that, like an Elvis impersonator that, through the power of Elvis, was casting out demons. I think that would be really good. In fact, no, I think there's a need. A Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Actually, edit this part out because I'm going to pitch this to Netflix, and mm-hmm. uh, they can have AI write it or whatever. Since all the writers are on strike. <laughs> <laughs> I just did a Google search under Elvis Exorcist, and apparently it was his. He was very fond of the scene in The Exorcist. He was, he was a big fan of the movie Exorcist. Point of this. This is right. he, he was he was into all kinds of weird mystical stuff too. I mean, um, according to some sources. Okay, let me read this. Not to cut you off, but Elvis found The Exorcist hilarious. King's favorite scene shared by Memphis Mafia. Elvis Presley would hire out Memphis movie theaters in the middle of the night to catch the latest films, and it turns out the King found the iconic horror movie The Exorcist really funny. His family members shared fond memories of the cinema together as they revealed that their star thought of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Uh, being a huge star, Elvis Presley could only really go out in public when it was dark, renting out whole, fair, whole fairgrounds and roller skating rinks like the Rainbow Roller Dome. But one of the favorite activities was going to the uh, Memphian Movie Theater to see the latest films as often as every week for a week or more. Back in 1973, the king caught the horror movie, the whatever, The Exorcist. It just says a horror movie, TH. During a Q&A on his, on his YouTube channel, Elvis' cousin and a Memphis Mafia member, Billy Smith, remembered, we went to see it at the movie theater. He liked it. One of his favorite parts was when the head turned all around. He started laughing and said, I wish I could do that. That way I could look all the way around me when I got when I got ready. And he also said it looked like a hoot owl being able to move its head that far around. Billy's wife, Joe, went on to explain how the king would deal with the horror scenes and share the star's extraordinary reactions of Jaws. So, yeah, he would watch The Exorcist and laugh at it. It's pretty great. Pretty yeah. great. Now I want to find an Elvis exorcist. I, I would again. There's there's so much untapped crazy fun stuff here that this could be done. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of what happens in Baba Hotep. He kind of becomes he fights a mummy anyway. You know, mm-hmm. some exorcist qualities there. But <laughs> this also begs the question: What sins would you confess to Elvis at confessional? Yeah. 
I mean, it's only a quarter, so yeah. I don't know if that means you'd be like a small sin, or you figure it's a quarter that... Well, absolving your sins for 25 cents to Elvis is a pretty good bargain. As, as I you know, may as well go whole hog. <laughs> I mean, so far, worshiping Elvis sounds like a pretty, pretty inexpensive and, especially in these days, economically viable religion. It does. Which kind of blows my idea of an Elvis religion out of the water because I'm going to be doing it for the money, and it doesn't sound like there's a lot of money in the Elvis religion. So maybe it's That's just poor a marketing. Lot, a lot of quarters that you have to collect. You know? Well, I mean, you know. It'll help you do your laundry, maybe. but <laughs> I don't know. I, I still think there's a way it could be done. It's just a matter of, uh, I mean, think about it. You'd have you'd have the whole church procession dressed as Elvis. You know, you there's some great Elvis impersonators in there, I'm assuming. So, uh, Elvis and the esoteric. How much esoteric stuff was he into? Because I have read that he somewhat dabbled in magic. But then again, how true is that? With all you know, with everything being said and so forth. Yeah, I mean, there's so much mythology around him too. Um, from what I understand, he was very much into numerology. It's said that he kept a copy of Cairo's Book of Numbers with him. Um, at all times, and it was gifted to him by his hairdresser, Larry Geller. Uh, no relation to Uri Geller. Um, but uh, the, 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 this guy, Larry Geller, that did his hair was was uh, instrumental in, in kind of introducing Elvis to a lot of like New Age and metaphysical occult stuff. Um, and so... The numerology aspect of it all is is really interesting to me, and I kind of did a deep dive on that. Uh, the the uh, other than that, like I've heard accounts that he was into weather magic a little bit. He seemed to think like he could he could uh, move clouds in the sky just by waving his hand. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to. He was into yoga, so. Um, he was into the teachings of like Yogananda, and, oh, uh, yeah. and, and he was and and like martial arts like karate and kung fu, mm -hmm. uh, and basically things that he was interested in being able to do was like bilocate and teleport and like <laughs> cloud men's minds and things like that. So he was Elvis he, the Jedi. He really wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like the shadow, you know. Um, uh, in in some ways, uh, it, it, he he was really interested in being able to do the impossible and do miraculous things, you know. But I think part of that would come out of boredom of just being kind of sequestered. It's like he was reading in the article. He had to just to do something like watch a movie, rent the entire movie theater late at night, and go in there by himself or with just a couple friends or family members and watch a movie. You know, it, it's not like a normal life where any one of us can just go to the store real quick. See, yeah. that kind of thing, though, now that's kind of commonplace. I mean, you hear about about rock stars and performers and stuff doing this kinds of thing all the time. You know, um, I was um, last year I was down at Texas at the Texas, um, the, the AT&T dome down there. And they don't now, but for a while they had the world's largest jumbotron. And when our show was done and over with, I was working. Um, they they rent part of it out for conventions and stuff. So we were we were done with our part of the convention. And we were just sitting there, looking at the jumbotron, and we're like, man, what would it be like to play a video game or something on that? Well, they were giving tours of the stadium, and the guy that I was working with went down there, and he said, yeah, has anybody ever hooked up a video game to that? And he was like, yeah, the Jonas Brothers, the guy that ran a tour, was like, well, the Jonas Brothers came through here and they hooked it up and they played a uh, Modern Warfare Call of Duty on it. 
but he's like, that's that's big money. But you know, you can do that kind of thing when you when you're that much money, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But uh, that's you know, people people do that kind of thing all the time now. But back then, that that would be because the guy had no life at all. Outside of his outside of his music or whatever, he wasn't able to just go and do anything. He was continuously watched by everybody and everything. And yeah, and I mean, he was under the thumb of well, really a trio of people, but mostly the colonel. Um, uh, and uh, you know, the colonel kind of controlled everything he could do and did all those shows and everything like that. His father had some uh, say in what went on, and then there was his personal doctor that would basically. You know, um, give him a shot of adrenaline when he was passed out <laughs> to mm-hmm. get stage in time. You know, so he's kind of also all mixed up on different drugs and other things that that come with the lifestyle and um, pushing himself to exhaustion. So, I mean, uh, he did try to break away from those forms of control at different points and ended up just like willingly coming back because he didn't really know how to. Existed. You didn't have the skills, yeah. Um, the uh, one of the ways he was able to take charge of his life, I think, and this is pretty interesting in re- relation to numerology, because I feel like numerology is a completely unsexy version of occultism to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, like if you're like, oh yeah, he was into the occult, and they're like, what do you mean? And you say, well, numerology. They're like, oh, well, that's. That's cool, I guess. You know, people, don't, <laughs> people don't think of it as being that interesting. But um, I tracked down the book that he used, um, and uh, Cairo spelled C H E I R O, as in like uh, chiromancy or the reading of palms, as uh, the author here. And he was really well known. Wrote, wrote kind of a lot of books on fortune telling, um, and his book is really cool. And the one interesting thing about it is that he spends a lot of time talking about the number eight and um, in, in, in like Ellis's birthday was January 8th, 1935. So the number eight, if you crunch the numbers on Elvis's life and his name, the two most important numbers in numerology are the day you were born, your birth number, and the number that results as, as a, uh, as crunched from your name when you assign values to letters and, and come up with a number for it. So, um, Cairo spends a bunch of time in his book talking about Elvis's birthday specifically. It almost seems like he's <laughs> talking uh, like, not like he was writing about Elvis. It just so happened that Elvis's birthday fell into this thing that, um, that Cairo keeps referring back to. Um, so around the time he met Larry Geller, he changed his middle name from Aaron with one A to Aaron with two A's. Mm-hmm. And this has been something that played into a lot of the Elvis is Alive stuff later, where people thought it was like a gotcha moment. Where like, haha, on his birth certificate, it has Aaron with one A, and on his gravestone, it's Aaron with two A's, you know? So it's not really Elvis in that <laughs> But, um... It's pretty easy to prove that he had his father change his name legally for him in the late 60s. And this would have been right around the time he met Larry Geller. And if you do that and change his middle name from having two A's to one, 
his overall number becomes um, uh, seven for his name instead of the six that it would have been. Because I guess um, the eight is like a really fateful number. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it has bad things with it. And if he was trying to change the course of his fate and change what was going on, changing his name is the only, since you can't change the day you were born, you change your name. Changing his number from his name number from six to seven was something that he did intentionally to um, to to actually metaphysically change himself as a person. And this is around the time he starts. This is the big comeback of Elvis. Is like sixty nine into the seventies where he starts wearing the jumpsuits. He starts wearing a lot of regalia and he has like the scarf and a lot of gold and and big belts and all this other stuff, you know. So he kind of reinvents himself right around this time um, with the name change and the interest in numerology, which, uh, you know, involved me crunching a lot of numbers to figure this out and doing the numerology myself. So <laughs> I hope people appreciate this insight. Uh, <laughs> I think you got a book on your hands here, man. What's that? I think you got a book on your hands here. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about it a little bit um, because his death date becomes interesting as well. Um, he died on August 16th, and if numerology 16, Cairo, the way Cairo writes about the numbers is he gives you the corollary in the tarot and the major arcana. Number 16 would be the tower. Um, that gets really interesting when you think about like the crown on top of the tower falling and the figure falling from the window the lightning bolt, which that's an Elvis symbol right there as well. Um, and the fact that 16, you would reduce down to seven because you'd add one plus six, the two digits become seven, which is the number that uh, theoretically he was aiming for. So if he were to plan a day to die, the 16th of August would be a good one. Is it though? <laughs> Or, or it would be a good day to fake his death and start a new life. I mean, you, you sound like you got the basis for a good little system of magic going here. So, well, I mean, okay, but this is even weirder, though, because he was the king of rock and roll. He's got the crown falling off the tower on August 16th. Uh, the other people that have died on August 16th are Robert Johnson, the king of the Delta Blues, mm -hmm. and Aretha Franklin, who was um, the queen of soul. Mm. And uh, when you get away from music, August 16th deaths include Babe Ruth, who was the Sultan of Swing, the King of Swat, all of those names in baseball, and um, Bela Lugosi, who most famously played the King of the Vampires, Dracula. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's something weird about that date, August 16th. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's a wild one. You know, you know, I'm interested in his ideas about uh, weather magic and controlling the weather, because, of course, um, AP, you and I have talked, we have a shared interest in Ted Owens, yeah, who was big on the weather. But it, I, when you were talking, I thought, because uh, uh, I almost said, what's his ass? George P. Hansen, author of Trickster and the Paranormal. <laughs> Steph, what does what's his ass? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is a there family show. <laughs> anyway, so he talks about uh, family show. Where did, where did you get that? 
<laughs> is there about, rumors going on out there that I don't know about? Or we're talking about making families with the help of the aliens? Yes. Oh my gosh. Making um, children envision a naked Vernon Presley. Yes. As long as there's a blue light, that's all that matters. Amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry, Steph. But go on. George Hansen, weather magic. Ted I was talking about Weber was talking about like pure charisma. And how this is often associated with, um, you know, the ability to influence people, but also weather magic and stuff. And I was thinking, because Elvis, I mean, he was like phenomenal with the crowd, right? I mean, you know, you see him singing or whatever, and people are just, they're enthralled, they're eating out of his hand. And he loves it. And it's just like he makes it look so easy. So it's interesting to me that he has that type of charisma for people, but then also had the idea of um, weather magic. And I thought, it's interesting because... If you look at it from kind of a, a, I don't know what what level I want to say this, but it's like a bunch of people, it's kind of like a a bunch of individual, uh, let's say, atoms, and they all have their own things. They can behave cohesively, even though they're all these individual things. And it's the same with clouds, right? You have all these kind of chaotic individual atoms in there, but they can be... um, form to act together and, and, you know, create tornadoes or whatever. So I thought it was kind of weird. It's like he, he has a, a gift for taking these potentially uh, chaotic groups of, you know, beings and uh, manipulating them, working with them. Um, so it's just kind of wild. Do you know when he's kind of a trickster figure, too? I mean, he loved playing exactly, yeah. people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was watching a uh, because I, I was never actually interested in Elvis or anything, <laughs> but uh, so I was watching just some of his performances on video last uh, YouTube last few days, and there's uh, oh he's performing Suspicious Minds in Vegas in 1970, and uh, he's drawing the performance out and everything, and he has all these backup singers, and he has this thing where he kind of goes over to this one backup singer, and he's kind of giving her the eyeballs, and she's starts busting up and then he kind of leaves her alone and then he comes back back over and just like kind of like boo at her and she jumps yeah but it's just it's just so funny and it's just like he could just get up there and just be like well it's kind of weird because like we're talking about how he could never be natural or be himself Mm -hmm. except for when he's on stage there and he could just get away with anything yeah in a very weird way right yeah, I mean, he had a camaraderie with the people up on the stage and everything. Yeah. Um, I think he was allowed to be himself. I think he just wasn't allowed to be himself, like, in mixed company. He always had the same people. Exactly. Yeah. Only when you're up on stage, yeah. Yeah. It's controlled uh, circumstances. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're going to look up live performances, though, and to the audience listening, like, if you haven't seen it, they actually use it at the end of the Elvis movie that came out. Um but if you, you can look on YouTube to see, like, I think it's the last concert he ever played, and he does um, Unchained Melody. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is big. Like, he doesn't look well. He's, he's yeah. very, his face is very large, and he's sweating, and um, he's playing piano and singing. Um, it, that, it, it is, like, one of the craziest vocal performances ever it just gives you chills you know i uh, <laughs> i have to admit to being kind of kind of a fan man i'm kind of a fan of elvis because the the things he did with his voice is um pretty phenomenal you know uh 
Yeah. So, and if you find that video, it's it's hard not to to actually get shivers from it. Um, and it's tough to see him like that too. And he's sweating, and he looks like he needs help. Uh, somebody's holding a microphone to his mouth. He doesn't have it on a stand, and he keeps looking to the person while he's singing, and he's giving him this smile that's just kind of like, "Thank you for being here for me," you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, a, he- it's really. I gotta say, it's pretty moving. He had a terrible um, megacolon when they did the autopsy, Um, and I don't know. It could very well have been, yeah, due to all the drug use, which is actually well, the same thing happened to Judy Garland, where you know you just that was the way that you would manage entertainers back in the day. Um, But. I was looking. I was looking into megacolon a little bit, and first of all, it sounds like it would, you know his colon was horribly distended. But I think that uh, it can also involve or uh, be uh, worsened by infection of the colon, which I I kind of because like when you say how he looked at the end, uh, I wonder if that had started to be some type of uh, infection situation too, which is ter- terrible because it's a huge organ, um, yeah. even if it's not so distended. Um, well, I, mean, so, I imagine it affects your glands too, and you end up just kind of ballooning up because well, I yeah, mean, your body's retaining all of its poisons and everything. So, I mean, that's yeah, one of the ways yeah. your body excretes poison. So, if your colon's all backed up and everything is just packed in there and it's not leaving your body, your body yeah. absorbs all of its nutrients through your intestines. That's, yeah, you know, mess up your yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if that's not going anywhere, your body's not going to. It's going to block. I'm not a doctor by any means, so I might just be talking out of my ass, or I'm going off what I think so in my speak. head. Yeah. So ding. Uh, but no yeah, pun it can intended. involve an infection too, and it's it'd be very yeah, exactly. painful as well. So so it's yeah. yeah. That makes perfect. Like if if and you've got food and stuff trying to go through there, and you can't absorb nutrients and everything. It's kind of like you know, it's it's kind of like your liver shutting down. Your body's mm-hmm. no longer able to process the poisons that it's trying to get rid of. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's, you know, you might be onto something with all that, too, because uh, throughout the 70s, a lot of people close to him would say that whenever he was at Graceland and not touring or not doing his Vegas shows or whatever, he'd get lazy and he'd gain a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. But as, as soon as like one one tour was coming up or a show was coming up. He would like buckle down and diet and exercise like crazy for two weeks and get right back into shape. Mm-hmm. He was supposedly able to do this, just like transform right back into like a slimmer Elvis. <laughs> Shapeshifter. And, yeah, and then yes, shape shifting like, reptilian gray aliens. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's no, that's that's the genetics right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, like that last go round, he wasn't able to do it. He just couldn't he couldn't make it work. So. If he if he did have that kind of management of his of his own body fat, maybe that last time it was due to something else that he didn't wasn't aware of, you know, called opioids. <laughs> well, I wonder too about infection because I know that um, when I was growing up, there's like a lot of people. There was like a lot more ulcers and stuff. Now, as it turned out, it's it's transmitted uh, in the water supply, and um, as the water supply got better fewer people got ulcers and stuff. So I kind of wonder about different um, low-grade infections, you know, that you can get from the water, especially because when he was growing up, you know, he was in really poor areas. They had terrible water. I had a, 
a friend of my sister's in high school, and she's just always um, very slender and, you know, always super picky about food and didn't want to eat a lot. And people are like, well, maybe she has, I don't know, a little bit of an eating disorder or just like picky or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so she goes off to college, and within a few months, she's in the emergency room because her appendix is just about bursting. And it turned out that she had had this like horrendous, uh, append- like low grade appendicitis for like years, but it just it never really got that bad. So it makes it, I don't know. When I saw that, it kind of always put me in mind of, uh, especially b- back in that day, because she got. I don't know if it was like that 83 or or 84, 1984, when she got real, um, finally got that appendix out. And then um, then she enjoyed food and stuff, you know, because she wasn't like kind of chronically brewing some infection in there. But it makes me wonder about something like like that possibly being a factor in what was going on with them. But, yeah, if you're getting uh, uppers and opioids all the time, it's just going to. Make it much worse. Maybe. What was that movie, The Interview, where they were talking about uh, the Korean leader, about the woman said that he does not poop or pee. His body is so efficient that it processes everything. Oh, no. (laughs) Maybe. No, that's a bad direction to go with this. I don't know. I'm trying to go back to the alien engineering again. uh, I don't know. Someone accused me today. I I don't know. I I made a stupid joke about... uh, Someone uh, getting like so stubborn about being anti-science that they decided they, that they were only going to uh, take in nutrition via photosynthesis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've read articles about people that do that, but you never hear about what happens to them. Like they just they think they can get their food or nutrients from the sun or something like that. Yeah, but that doesn't seem like a process that would last very long. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Stephanie knows some breatharians. Yes, my my dad. When I was um, in elementary s- school and high school, my dad worked for Western Union, and he was kind of more of a supervisor. So he'd travel all up and down the state of California. And uh, one of the guys he knew down in L.A. in the seventies was a, a breatharian. He was, um, yeah, he was getting better and better at uh, eating less food and getting more of his energy from the air. <laughs> I, I want to talk to these people. <laughs> I don't know if I want to have them on the air, but I'm just curious. Like, like, well, explain this to me. How? How are you? What? So, anyways, all right. Well, we've been going for a little bit here, so I'm going to wrap it up. Um, I don't know how much weirder we can get with this, but um, AP, uh, throw your blog out there because you do have a blog. You've talked about it before. So, what? Uh, what's your blog? What do you talk about there, and where can people find you? Um, you can find that at apstrange.com. If that doesn't work, put a www in there. I don't know why, but sometimes when you don't do that, it doesn't pop up. But um, if you Google me, I actually end up at the top of the search bar now, which didn't used to be the case. Um, You can find stuff on there about the Bugs Bunny UFO connection or uh, let's see what else. The numerology of Elvis, obviously. Uh, (laughs) You can yeah, all kinds of all kinds of wacky posts and things that I write about. Um, and I'm fairly active on Twitter, and that's pretty much my only social media that I use. Outstanding, Stephanie. Where can people find you these days? Because I know you're all over the place in podcasts and everything. I remember when you were this person that just did not want to do a podcast at all. <laughs> you didn't want to speak to anybody, and then lo and behold, Greg Bishop snags you up, and then from there, you've just been <laughs> off and running ever since. Oh my gosh. Um, 
Well, I have a blog called uh, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. It's stephaniequick.home.blog. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of uh, articles there and then uh, a um, a page with my podcast and uh, video shows on there, although I haven't been able to get in there for a while, uh, so it's not completely up to date. But um, And then I'm on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter if people are interested in that, or um, also on my blog, you can see my email if you, uh, people want to send me an email about anything. So, yeah. Well, guys, thanks for coming back on and helping me restart this uh, this big locomotive and seeing if I can get this thing running again. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'll hang out for one second, though, after I get this done. But, um, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking this all this strangeness as far as we possibly can. I do have a feeling we could go further with more prep, but... um. Elvis as Jesus, extraterrestrial, uh, numerological wizard, I think is a pretty good place to end it up. So <laughs> Heck yeah. GC. No, it's fun. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, not too bad of a show for my first time back in seven, eight months. Again, apologies to the guys over at Conspiranormal, Seraphel, all you guys. I love you guys dearly. You're some of the coolest people in this realm of podcasting. And uh, it was not my intention whatsoever to rip you guys off in your show. I had no idea that you guys recorded that. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, well, shit. Um Okay, I guess we'll put it out anyways, but um, do go over and listen to that episode that they did over there on Elvis with AP Strange as well. The two are similar and they go well together. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't cover too much that they covered over there. But um, I do have another show that's recorded. Gary Morgan from the Bizarro Aficionado podcast was cool enough to come down and hang out with me a few weeks ago when I was vacationing over on that side of the States. Got to meet him in person, go out to dinner, make fools of ourselves with a bad Jamaican cover band inside of this microbrewery that had really good food. But uh, we just kind of sat down and said, well, what are we going to record about? Found a bunch of stuff and hit record. And that is the next episode that I'm going to be producing as soon as I get this one dropped and in the feed, catch my breath and jump right back into it. After that's done, I have several ideas for shows that I want to do. It's just a matter of nailing down the guests and doing it and uh, getting the stuff recorded. And that kind of is always the bane with podcasting. It's a very kind of, I don't, I don't want to say thankless job, but you're always like, you got to always get the book. You got to read the book. Then you got to get a hold of the author. Then you got to get the person onto the show and find out when it's compatible, or you got to find the articles to talk about and all of those kinds of things. And as I said, I'm not that interested in paranormal anymore, but I still want, still want to cover the weird and the strange and you know, all of those kinds of things. And there's still a lot of meat on the bone out there, I think, to cover those topics. Though I'm not going to lie, and I'm going to be a little contradictory, I do kind of want to do a show about all of this weird stuff that's been going on with the whole disclosure with Congress and UFOs and stuff. Not so much the fact that they did the whole whatever you want to call what that was in front of Congress, but the reactions to it and and what's being said and how people have reacted to it is something that I'm very curious about because, um, as Aunt Steph has taught me, try to be the outside observer as much as possible. And being the outside observer watching this whole UFO phenomena uh, with what happened in Congress and with people in that field and where, where people's beliefs and ideas and stuff lie and watching the reactions has been 
it's been very interesting to me um, to watch this happen because my views tend to fall in the middle of all that stuff. So nobody in that field really cares much for me. So, yeah, I'm interested in talking about that. It's just a matter of figuring out a way to make that happen. That might be my next big um, thing that I'm going to sit down and try to do. But anyways, yeah, here's the show. I'm going to get another one up soon, and I'm going to try to get another one up after that. And I'm going to try to keep doing shows as much as I possibly can. I know I've said that before, but hey, my computer died and a bunch of stuff happened. And, you know, life is a thing, folks. So uh, anyways, that's that. I will see you all again soon. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit.